Hello, everyone. Back again. It's Dr. Panarella. Although I hope you know that by now. But if you're new here, that's who I am. And this is my podcast. Anyway, some random thoughts. From the last podcast, when I talked about the corn cob incident, after that podcast, I was thinking to myself and really explained a GI obstruction. And I thought, well, this is probably a good time to do it. And coincidentally, I had wanted to talk about the difference between a thrombosis and an embolism, and it segued perfectly uh, the obstruction idea segued perfectly to talking about thrombosis and embolism. So today is a little bit of a catch-all. But first, before I forget, I finally watched this uh, documentary by a famous documentarian, Werner Herzog. He's German, so he's got a bit of an accent, but he's made many, many documentaries. And he did one called Grizzly Man in about 2005. And I had heard about it on different podcasts, and I finally actually watched it over the last couple of days. And, you know, it's a strange, it's a strange documentary. There's technically nothing graphic in it. If you have a weak stomach, there's some descriptions of, uh, what happened to the grizzly man and his uh, then girlfriend anyway he did not survive living with the grizzlies he lived amongst the grizzlies for over a decade at, you know for months at a clip and it's a strange documentary in the sense that he obviously grizzly man couldn't be interviewed but he had over 100 hours of video that uh Werner Herzog had access to, so he used a lot of that footage. And it struck me as a person in the animal world, working in the animal world, how in my estimation, and this is my personal opinion, how deluded some people get with animals and the transference of emotions and thoughts and feelings between the person, what the person is projecting onto the animal, and what the animal is actually experiencing. And I think that this is a really key point here, is that human beings, we can feel a particular way or have ideas about a particular event or animal and think that we know when in fact we don't know. And this goes for the educated, the uneducated. It has nothing to do with your level of education, in my opinion. It's how some human beings operate. And I know that I've made some comments over the past, you know, history of, of this podcast about people and animals being moved all over the country. And there's an awful lot of people who think they really know animals. And my no animals, meaning that, you know, in the Grizzly Man, he talks about uh, he loves them. Uh, he talks to them in, very, uh, in, a, in a very strange voice, full-on grizzly bears that, are, that come right up to him. And he had no magical power. He was delusional. 
had a lot of his own issues that he was grappling with that he, I'm not a psychologist, but projected onto the the grizzly grizzly bears. And it turns out he was mostly anti-human and anti-civilization. Even though all the equipment he had was made by civilization, all the clothing that he had, uh, the tents that he lived in. So a very disturbed and mostly dysfunctional human being. And became a little bit famous with his with his love and videos of the grizzly bears and educating kids about grizzly bears, which I think was a really great part of what he did. But in the end, his delusion led to his demise. And I feel that I see this amongst human beings, even in my little sphere of the world, when you're just talking in this problem podcast is primarily about dogs and cats, but you see it with people hoarding animals, especially uh, hoarding cats. Uh, you see it in people doing these rescues that are constantly searching out animals, whether it's from, you know, if you live in the northern United States and you're going down to the southern United States and you're rescuing, um, I don't mean rescuing, literally you're just transplanting these animals from the south to the north and you are bringing disease with you and you might be thinking oh i'm helping these animals uh making lives better i would argue you're not necessarily making anything better you're just bringing different diseases to different locations as was found out during katrina when 50 percent of the animals that were relocated across the united states transferred heartworm disease all over the country now heartworm disease does exist in most of the country but when you bring half the animals up and they have heartworm disease, you are actually going to be spreading heartworm disease. So I, I would caution people to have a reality check. If you know anybody like this, try to speak to them and bring them back to reality. Because we feel or think a certain way doesn't mean that that's how life really is. And animals, my take is, sure, I love my dog. Absolutely, I love my dog. Uh, do I think that my dog really understands me? Probably not. Her view of the world is food-based. Most animals are, are based around food. Yes, we can train them to do things. Yes, they have uh, a, a level of intelligence, but in my opinion, most of that is instinctual around survival. And I think a lot of us humans lose our survival instinct. And we allow our emotions and feelings to cloud that survival instinct. So if you know anybody, try to talk them down. If you're involved in one of these groups, really take a close look at what's going on and whose benefit really, who, who are you really benefiting if, you're benefiting if you're in those groups? Is it really for the person running the organization? Is it for you? Is it really for the animals? Do the animals really need to be moved all over the country and all over the world? Is this really improving the, the, the globe? Because it is one globe and there is an interaction between the earth itself, you know, quote unquote, mother nature, the animals and us. So transplanting these animals as, as an example in my world, it's not always beneficial. It can be, but I think it's a case by case basis. And I don't think it's something that needs to be done ad nauseum and over and over and over. And I think that's what we see a lot of. So Grizzly Man is an interesting documentary. I, I could recommend it, but uh, it might not be for the faint of heart. Okay, so let's get back to what I had started talking about, is intestinal obstruction. 
and I had talked about a corn cob. So an intestinal obstruction is a blockage of the lumen of the bowel by something. And if you've ever eaten a sausage, which most people probably have, you can really think about the intestinal system as sort of like that sausage. Where the meat is, is the lumen, which is basically just an opening. It's a it's an imaginary space until it's filled with, with food, or by the time it gets to the bowel called digesta. And there's something we would call a foreign body, whether it's a corn cob, could be a piece of bone, could be some kind of ball, could be clothing, it could be almost anything. Now, I'll just make a quick aside. I'm I am talking about something that is causing a true obstruction to flow, flow of the digesta and flow of food. We all know you eat something and then at some point you have to poop it out. Animals are no different. There are many other types of foreign bodies. Cats can get into yarn or string. Technically, yes, that is a foreign body. A lot of times it gets hung up under the tongue, but it also works its way down into the intestines and then it can and cause damage through a sawing motion because the bowel moves on its own. That's called peristalsis. So that's that's one other type of foreign body, but usually it's not an obstruction. It's more of damage to the intestines. Although what I'm talking about today, the obstruction will cause damage to the intestines ultimately. Onset of one of these obstructions is usually fairly acute, short term. It usually happens in one to a few days. Although sometimes a foreign body, although I wouldn't really call a tumor a foreign body, if you if an animal has cancer inside the intestines, which can happen, usually it would be a slow-growing, over-weeks-to-months process. So that you can get a, a functional obstruction from a tumor such as lymphoma inside the lumen of the intestines. So we have acute versus chronic. Under duration of this obstruction, if if I'm going to primarily, I'm not really today focusing on tumors. I'm really focusing on if your dog were to swallow something, let, let's say a corn cup, the duration of that obstruction is going to play into, number one, how sick the animal is, and number two, how well it will probably survive whatever treatment is necessary. Because the longer an obstruction sits in there, in general, the worse the damage the more of infection that there can be, the more treatment that is required. And as those things increase, their survivability does tend to decrease. So some clinical signs, since this is the Clinical Science Podcast, some clinical signs of intestinal obstruction that an owner might look for would be any vomiting or diarrhea. There could be lack of stool, complete lack of stool, or we could have some variability in there where there's diarrhea and then the stool the diarrhea just decreases, 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 because in general, these animals are not eating, so then nothing can come out, although the animal might be straining to poop. It can be partial or complete anorexia. Partial anorexia means it's only picking at foods, or maybe it eats its favorite, you know, slice of chicken or, or favorite dog treat. It doesn't really want to eat its regular dog food, and the same would be true for cat food. Water, they may not be consuming any water or they may consume water and then just throw that, vomit that back up. It can be nausea, which would result in drooling. The animal can have a bloated abdomen and that's the belly. The belly can look swollen. 
And the animal can also have a hunched appearance. Its back is arched, and it doesn't really want to move very much. Now, as I like to do with these disease discussions, I like to delve into the pathophysiology. And from the pathophysiology, you can really understand what's going on with the animal. Although this podcast really is, in my mind, slated for the general public, veterinary technicians and veterinarians. I think sometimes even for the general public, if you have an animal with one of these problems, I think it's good for you to try to understand as much about what's going on as is possible. So as I mentioned, the obstruction will, in the beginning, maybe only partially obstruct flow, but then later on it's going to probably obstruct all flow so that no digester will pass through and then no gas. And the same, if you think about yourself for a minute, uh, you know, to be a little indelicate, I think most of us have experienced burping. I think most of most of us have experienced passing gas. Same goes for you and your pet. It's a normal process from the microbiome, the bacteria and protozoa inside your intestines. That's where the, mostly that gas is coming from, of course, unless you have club soda or something. But they have to pass the digested food and the gas in and out, just like we do. In and out, I didn't really mean in, but I mean out through the mouth or out through the anus. I think this is a good place to mention the term ileus, and that's when the bowel loses its ability to contract, and that term is called peristalsis. So ileus is basically when the bowel freezes up, and that's when the digesta and the gas are not able to move uh, in, you know, from the from the mouth towards the anus as it normally should. And what happens with this blockage? It's going to cause, so imagine just stuffing some tube full of something so that nothing can go past it, right? So you just, you're causing a lot of stretching. And that stretching is where the pain fibers are in the submucosal layer of the intestines. And that's where the pain comes from. So anybody that's had gas pain or gut pain, it's from stretching. So this blockage causes actual direct pressure on the wall of the intestine, just lined with a uh, with epithelial cells, which I've mentioned before, because epithelial cells are subject to certain diseases by themselves, uh, viruses, bacteria. And this pressure can lead to infection because you're getting damage of the cells and you're allowing the bacteria that are in the lumen to spread into the inner linings of the intestinal wall and then possibly into the bloodstream. And that releases the inflammatory cascade. Now, I'm not going to go in depth. I have a fairly decent schematic diagram that I'm going to put a link to. Yes, it is a human diagram, but it is is as valid for human beings as it is for animals. So the inflammatory cascade is just like it sounds. There's a lot of mechanisms going on. There's a lot of chemicals being released inside the body to try to address this inflammatory process from bacteria crossing from the lumen of the bowel into the bowel and into the bloodstream because your body, of course, doesn't like that. And some clinical signs of that uh, inflammatory process are fever. Uh, I had mentioned bacterial leakage from the gut, and it can go also not just into the bloodstream, but into the abdomen itself, outside of the, the wall of the intestines, 
and that's called peritonitis. And that's where the body, again, is putting out fluid to combat. There is always a small amount of fluid in the uh, in the peritoneal cavity. That's that space. That's normal because you're, you're just like an us, an animal. The intestines have to slip and slide around. But if you get an infection in there, you're going to get peritonitis. And you're going to get an increase in fluid. You're also going to get leaking of fluid and protein and probably some lymph from the intestinal system, from the intestinal tract that's compromised. And again, there could be retching in a hunched abdomen. And we also call that a tucked appearance, where the animal is sort of sucked up or tucked up in its abdomen and its back is going to be hunched. The obstruction can also and will also cause a decrease or a complete cessation or stoppage of blood flow, which is very bad. Causing This causes further toxicity released into the bloodstream. And ultimately, if you have a cessation of all blood flow, you're going to get necrosis, which is the death of the cells. So on top of the the crushing of the obstruction, the obstruction crushing the cells of the intestine, the infection in the intestine that goes into the bloodstream, you can also get death of the intestine itself, which again is just triggering the inflammatory cascade. And on top of that, it's also uh, triggering a clotting cascade, the decreased blood flow. You're getting damage to the lining of the blood vessels. That's called the endothelium. And that's triggering uh, the body to actually obviously stop that. And that's where you get thrombosis and embolism. And the clinical signs of the decreased or eliminated blood flow would be, if it was in a limb, it would be a cold limb because you have no blood flow. Okay, And those tissues in the limb are going to start dying. That could be the tail. It could be a leg. Tachycardia, you're going to get an increased heart rate and you're going to get hypertension with that and increased blood pressure. And you're also going to get tachypnea, which is a, a, a animal is going to obviously be in pain. And there's going to be some metabolic changes inside the animal's bloodstream, which is going to cause it to try to blow off CO2. So you're going to get tachypnea, you're going to get a rapid heart, or excuse me, you're going to get a tachycardia rapid heart rate, but you're also going to get tachypnea, which is a rapid respiratory rate. And then the result of all this is necrosis of the gut. And that, as I said, causes further toxicity being released into the bloodstream and just a worsening of this inflammatory cascade, and you're getting multiple uh, thrombosis. And I'll get into the differences between thrombosis and emboli later on, but you're getting blood clots being thrown throughout the body. And again, additional clinical signs can be lethargy, not wanting to move around or get up at all. Or they could be recumbent, meaning they're basically just laying there. They don't even have the ability to get up. At this point with the necrosis, depending on where you are in this process, we mentioned that the heart rate can be fast, but now you can get bradycardia because the body is fading. The body's ability to compensate is, is fading. Uh, that also would go for a decreased pulse, pulse rate. Breathing might be shallow, bradypenia. We would get a decreased respiratory rate and the ability to breathe. If the abdomen is filling up a fluid, it's also pushing on the thorax, and then that's causing compression of the lungs and the ability for the lungs to expand. And the diaphragm has to flatten out to create a negative, to help create a negative pressure. 
and with movement of the chest wall. So the animal may not be breathing very well, and then ultimately would lead to death. So it, it sounds like a painful and slow process. It is. It is a terrible process that is, sometimes it cannot be stopped even with the best of treatment. So obviously you want to try to avoid having any one of these issues crop up. How can we diagnose this? Physical exam is going to, any physical exam by a veterinarian is going to uncover all of these things because we're going to take a pulse, we're going to take a temperature, we're going to check the heart rate, we're going to check the breathing, we're going to palpate the abdomen, we're going to try to attempt to feel the abdomen. If the abdomen is really tense and hard, we're going to know there's a big problem, we're going to rectal the animal. That might give us a clue to what's going on. Okay, so from the physical exam perspective, you're probably going to have a really great uh, idea of what's going on, especially if uh, the owner or whoever brings in the animal has seen the animal eat something or swallow something, although they don't always know that. So other diagnostic testing that we can take would be radiographs. Sometimes on plain radiographs, we can see the gas. The stasis of the gas in the abdomen not moving. We can see ground glass, what's called ground glass, where you have fluid in the peritoneum, obscuring intestinal, uh, in, in, obscuring the intestines from visualization. We can add this chemical called barium, which is an element which you can drink, which a lot of human beings have had, and it is really good because it's really radiopaque. So it shows up white on an on a on a radiograph, and and although barium is good, you don't use barium if you if you think you're going to do surgery. So barium is good sometimes, sometimes it's not. You can do CAT scans, you can do MRIs, and you can do abdominal ultrasound. So through any one of those modalities, you you should be able to come up with a conclusive diagnosis of what's going on, and the and all of the problems I had mentioned, whether it's a tumor or it's a ball or even a corncob, they have what's called pathognomonic signs, which are technically, for a layman, a classic signs of, of a disease process. And then what would be the treatments? Well, in this case, it would be surgery. You might need an abdominal exploratory because you know there's a problem. You're just not sure where. And you have to go through all the, all the abdominal organs. You go through uh, all the intestinal tract and, and you run it to check for problems because there can be obviously more than one problem. You might need to do an enterotomy. You're going to slice into the intestines, remove the item, and then sew the suture, the intestines back up. You might need to do a resection. You might need to remove if there's necrosis. And there's special ways that surgeons can check for uh, blood flow or lack of blood flow. So they might need to do a resection of bowel. They might need to take out the necro necrotic piece or pieces of intestines, and then there's all sorts of supportive care like IV fluids, antibiotics. Depending on what the blood pressure is, you might not need to uh, administer special drugs to keep the blood pressure up. You might need to give plasma because the animals have lost a lot of protein. You might need to give antibiotics. You're definitely going to be administering analgesics and pain medications because this entire process is extraordinarily painful. And then on top of it, you have the, the process of um, the surgery and the surgical insult to the body, and that's going to be painful as well. And then maybe some an, an, anti-endotoxin treatments. Endotoxins are created from bacteria, gram-negative bacteria. So that process 
is a is a long and drawn out process. Even if it's caught very quickly, it's still going to take the animal several days to recover in the hospital. And if it goes on for a, an extended period of time, several days, and now you're getting necrosis, the animal's recovery can be can be quite a bit different. I'm already at about 20, 25 minutes here in this podcast. So I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm actually going to split this podcast. It'll be, the, I'm going to make a second podcast on thrombosis and embolism. It'll basically be a two-part podcast, but that's okay. I think that this is enough information for one podcast for people, for you all to digest. As always, I appreciate your listening. I appreciate you letting me ramble a little bit. I hope that my perspective on the world and on animals has been helpful to you, and I look forward to seeing you again. Take care.